0: The episode you are about to hear was created prior to our rebranding to Foul Play. If you have any information on any of our cases, you can visit us at itsfoulplay.com.
1: this is Gemma and shane out of the shadows and i always am excited to talk to people that i know and this person i you all know and love because she was in the keepers and this is my friend mary spence and mary and i appreciate each other's eccentricity Because she is one of the most creative, interesting, adorable people I've ever met in my whole life. And today we're going to welcome her to the program. Hi, Mary. Yay, glad to be here. How are you? We're good.
2: Okay. Well, Gemma, here's something you should talk about how we know each other from way, way back, which maybe I knew you more so than you knew me. We attended the same we both went to St. William of York. Right. You were about two years ahead of me. Mm-hmm. I was in the same class with Teresa Lancaster for seven years so I do know her. Although when we got to high school you know how it is people ripped off with different groups of friends and we didn't really hang around in high school together.
1: Yeah a lot of people don't know that Teresa Lancaster was Teresa Harris. Correct. Uh, Joe Harris was my chemistry teacher at Archbishop. Okay. for older brother. Well,
2: my first day of first grade, I met Teresa Harris because Mm -hmm. when we left school, I was supposed to be in Patrol 2. I wasn't really sure what Patrol 2 was. It was you went out in a group and you all went home together and Patrol 2 crossed Edmondson Avenue and went home a certain way. And I was kind of mixed up, and I was standing out on Cook's Lane, and along came a really nice lady who said, are you lost? And I said, uh-oh, I'm not supposed to talk to strangers. Who's <laughs> this lady? And it turned out to be Teresa Harris's mother, and she explained that Teresa was her daughter. And um, so I let her take me home. I got in her car. Ooh. And that's how Teresa and I really met and, you know, played together sometimes and whatnot when we were younger. You talk about how Sister Kathy motivated you to be a great teacher. Don't forget your own mother was a great teacher. And in sixth, seventh, and eighth grade, I took art lessons from Gemma's mother that she gave on Saturday. She had an art studio in her basement where she taught kids. And I have to say she was the most, she was the kind of teacher that could really motivate a kid, to take risks, and try new things. And she'd be like, well, we can fix it if it doesn't work. But I think that's where I got my idea of, you know, you might as well just try. And if it's not right, you can redo it. And that was a good lesson to learn for life. But here's the most important thing. You do not know Gemma, and I'm so glad your mother didn't know. But the first time I ever kissed a boy was in your basement.
1: Oh, Mary.
2: <laughs> first Don't of all, tell your, well, you can't tell your mother. I'm glad she maybe is looking down and laughing now. But um, there was a boy in my class, and we were washing up our brushes at the end of the day. It happened. It was a really nice, not a pushy, aggressive kind of kiss. It was a very sweet first kiss to have. So I remember his name.
1: And first of all, Mary, I had no idea you came to the art class. So that, yes, I'm so excited to hear that. Because I knew that you and I had a connection before we had the Keepers connection. I just recognize it in other people. Okay. Because my mom really did, she was way ahead of her time. And she encouraged kids to be original. And you are one of the most original people I know. So first of all, you have to go back and tell us. Um, how old you were, and who the boy was.
2: Okay, well, I think I was in seventh grade, so I guess, you know, 12 or 13. Was that what you would be in seventh grade? Sure. I guess. Well, his first name was Mark, but I'm not going to say the rest. He didn't go to St. Williams. He went to public school. You know, I only saw him on Saturdays, but we had become, you know, friends, and we talked together, and it was a really great way to interact with the other sex in a non-threatening kind of way in the art class, you know, and things just happened. I guess he liked me or
1: something. And did you ever, like, pursue this relationship?
2: Well, as it turned out, I think it was sophomore year of high school, I needed a date for a dance, and he was nice enough to go with me, but, you know, that we never each other outside
1: of that. I hope Mark is listening because <laughs> we all want to know Mark, who are you?
2: <laughs> anyway, he probably doesn't even remember. Oh, and I also remember coming up at the end of the class, waiting for my mother to pick me up. We'd wait outside if it was nice weather, but mm-hmm. we'd wait in your living room till twelve thirty or whatever it was. Your father was always there. He was so nice. And your younger brother, was it Jimmy? Yes. Okay. Sometimes he was in there watching TV and occasionally a certain teenager named Gemma would come downstairs and, you know, I would see her. But I, I really didn't know you at school because I think you were two years ahead of me.
1: Right. Mary, um, do you remember that my mom, when you guys used to come in the front door, she would put down like a big plastic runner? Yes. So
2: like, yes. Like yes. Would go
1: from the front door to the basement. <laughs> yes. You would all like walk on the runner to the class <laughs>
2: right. and walk on the carpet. Well, I had relatives who had that all the time, so it didn't
1: <laughs> seem strange
2: to me. I didn't realize it was just for weekends.
1: Yeah. Funny. Along
2: with the vinyl flip covers, I don't think you had them, but I had relatives who had them.
1: Yeah, I don't remember that. Ours. Okay. Well used.
2: So. So that's how, you know, my first exposure was. To get my stop.
1: And here we are again,
2: huh? Yes. So I went to St. William's and then, you know, ended up, it's time for high school. I didn't really, you know, I guess because was new, that's where I chose to go. I don't remember any decision making. It was just kind of like, that's where everybody wants to go. So I want to go. So I ended up at Keogh. My experience was kind of like yours, rather uneventful um, you know, learn some stuff. I was in a bunch of clubs. I'll tell you this, I'm too talkative now. I get way off subject and talk about things that have no business talking about because it's off topic. But back then I was like a mole. I just quietly sat and observed and sighed on what was going on in other people's conversation, which is kind of funny because when I went to, um, recently got a master's in fine arts from the university of Baltimore in creative writing. And we were told, you know, one stimulus for writing is to sit in a cafe and listen to other people's conversations and then come up with a story that explains whatever it was they were talking about. Use that as your prompt? So that's kind of like, I already knew how to do that because I used to do that in high school. I rarely spoke. I just, quietly took it all in. Did I know Sister Kathy personally? No. But I saw her frequently because I had this habit. I didn't like to go from point A to point B when we changed classes, if you know what I'm talking about. I would say, I want to go see who else is here today. You know, what's my friend doing that's in history class right now? I'll go by her class and wave. So, I would start on the first floor and walk all around, run around the second floor, run around the third floor, and then just make it to class in time for where I was supposed to be. <laughs> and that's how come I tended to stay away from Maskell's end of the hall. I would only go by there once because he was such a sneak. He, or I don't know what, sneak isn't the right word. Maskell was such an observant individual. If he saw me going by there twice, he would say, get to where you're supposed to be. He knew what I was doing. And there was one other teacher that ever said anything to me was Sister Paulette. And she said, next time we meet, you treat. And I guess that meant I wasn't supposed to go by her more than once either. So I stayed away from certain areas. But the rest of the time, I was like going all over the place. Oh, I would frequently go by Sister Kathy. She was always nice, you know, smiled, said hi to everybody. And that's the only contact. I, I never had her as a teacher or anything like that. Like you, Gemma, I didn't know anything that was going on in Kio. I didn't find out till years later, till the 90s, that some of the stuff was going on. And I kind of feel bad about saying, originally saying, if I'd known, I would have done something but now that i think about it probably not i prob i mean not that i wouldn't have wanted to but it would have been scary and i would have known that no one would believe me because a priest would never do anything like that was the attitude that people would have had those who were survivors i i just feel so bad that they were stuck in that situation and really You know, no one could really do anything in those days. Now, thanks to them that it's all come out, people might believe young girls and boys when they say, you know, what's going on behind the scenes.
0: Mary, many of our listeners... Will have already seen The Keepers and they'll probably recognize your name. But we actually, in our discussion group on Facebook, uh, we were asking people, you know, who in the series would you love to talk to? And pretty quickly your name came up just because you seem like a very, like a very cool ant. You, you seem very funny, <laughs> huggable, and truthful, and just a super cool person. But I wanted to also mention for our listeners who haven't seen The Keepers yet, which I feel like they should, you know, they should definitely go watch it. Right. Can, can you kind of describe to me what your role was in The Keepers and what you heard that day?
2: Well, first of all, for those who haven't seen The Keepers or even those who have, The Keepers was not something like a production where there was a casting call and we all came forward and auditioned and, you know, we were picked. Some of us didn't really want to do it. Some of us had to really think hard about did we want the publicity prior to the keepers, I had mentioned on a page that I wish still existed that was run for Keo grads, and it had to do with you know just us talking about the um, events. and I had mentioned that I knew what I was doing that night, and I had heard some noise coming from that direction. And I really didn't think it related, but I thought, what if it did? And I kept my mouth shut because we were urged to, if we knew anything at all, even if we thought it was dumb, even if we thought it wasn't related, come forward and let somebody else who knows about such matters decide. So I said, here's my chance to come forward and get something off my chest that I've been carrying for years. And before I can explain, that was that I heard a commotion up on North Bend Road, or not really, you know, some kind of hollering up on Rockland, North Bend Road on that night. And nobody has said, well, how does she know it's exactly that night? You know, and how can she remember this all these years? I think she, they do say, I think she's making it up, but she wants attention. I have to tell you why I was there and why I remember the specifics of it. And it co- kind of goes along the lines of, if you're old enough, you remember where you were when John F. Kennedy was shot. Or you remember where you were when the space shuttle exploded? It was one of those moments in my life, kind of like there was one person in the keepers who remembered because it was the night before her child was born, so she knew the exact day that something happened. So I can tell you how I remember this, and maybe it'll make it more reasonable as to why I would remember after all these years and not have made this up. And this has, I'll start at the point where my history teacher, Mr. Noon, who I did not have a crush on, and I'll explain later why we were hanging around his house. Mr. Noon came in on a Monday morning, and this would have been the following week after Sister Kathy was disappeared. She disappeared on a Friday, so go fast forward a week and then three days to Monday morning. And he came into history class and he said, I have to tell you what happened to me over the weekend. I'm too upset to talk about class, history class. I want to talk to you about how our government works and how you're supposed to be innocent until proven guilty and how I was crucified by the police over this weekend. It was one of those moments like, what? What happened, Mr. Noon? So he went on to tell us how on the Friday night, the anniversary, one week later from Sister Kathy's disappearance, Mr. Noon was coming home. It was around 10 o'clock at night or so. And he said, oh, I wonder if Sister, he called her Sister Russell, was upset. You know, it's a week later and she hasn't come back. I'll just stop by and see how she's doing. So he pulled, he lived around the corner, as you know, from the keepers, if you've seen it. And he pulled in and said, oh, gosh, the lights are out. I'm not going to bother her. Maybe she's sleeping. I'm just going to go home. So he pulls out, and lo and behold, the parking lot had been staked out by a police car. And they pulled him over and said, what were you doing? And he said, well, I just wanted to see Mr. Russell, but I decided not to why? Did you want to see her? So they pulled him in and gave him like a few hours of grilling and acting like he did it. He somehow had something to do with Sister Kathy's disappearance. He said they put him in a car, they drove him around Arbutus and all these places he'd never been and said, you know, did you take her up here that night, Joe? And no, I didn't. (laughs) I didn't have anything to do with it. So, you know, we were just so appalled that such a thing would happen, because none of us believed that our history teacher would have had anything to do with it. Lo and behold, and thinking about that for, you know, a few hours later, I said, oh my God, what if he needs an alibi? I'm going to have to be his alibi because I know where he was that evening, and I'm going to have to come forward and confess that I stood outside his house and watched him in his undershirt. Ah! So I, um, my whole life, I was like, well, I'm not going to say anything now. I'm just going to wait till he's arrested. And of course, thankfully he never was. But that's how I came to know the exact date that where I was, because that was the night of Sister Kathy's disappearance and that I had to, Provide his alibi, so I had to remember what he was doing that night. So, what was I doing that night? Well, I had a friend who lived down near Upland's apartment. Demi, you know where that is. Correct. Down the street from her lived another male teacher from Keough, and I used to be down her house and we'd see him drive by back and forth all the time. He had a blue Chevy, I think, maybe an Impala license plate. G thirty seven nine oh nine Pennsylvania, and I have a good memory, visual memory. Anyway, he moved in the summer, and we didn't know where he moved to, so we were just wondering where did he go. So we got on the beginning of November. Back then, it was a big deal because new phone books came out. You remember that, Gemma? They would come around and deliver them to your front door. And we said, well, let's look him up and see where he's living now. And she kind of had an interest in him, I have to say. So we looked up his address, and we got out one of those ADC maps, those great big maps. Oh, yeah. I believe if you le- live in England, they would call it a ordinance map. Anyway, it's... Now you just look on Google Maps and zoom in on the neighborhood. But so he found his address and looked it up on that map. And I was like, oh, I know exactly where that is. It's over by Rock Glen Junior High. And yes, it was called Rock Glen Junior High then. It's gone through many, many renamings. The school system has done away with junior highs. Now they have middle schools. I said, Let's walk over there. It's not far. It's right between here and my aunt's house she lived on Malbrook Road which is one block past from then so i was familiar with the neighborhood so we just took a little walk and i have to say i looked up the temperature because i remember it being cold it was in the 40s which if you do centigrade that would be 8 degrees centigrade maybe so and remember this was november which if you live in the southern hemisphere you'd be thinking spring but this was More like going on to winter. It was dark. It had been dark for like three hours. It was, you know, we were just creeping around. There were not people on the street normally, you know, we didn't see a soul. And so we go up the block and there's the house and there's was Mr. Noon up in the second floor window, putting on his um combing his hair. And um the light went out. A few seconds later another light went on downstairs. And we kind of were across the street behind a wall, and we were watching what's he going to do? And he, put, he came out dressed in a suit and tie and came down, got in his car, and rode away. And I looked at, we had watches back then, not cell phones. And I said, oh, it's a little after eight. He's going to be late for his date if he was supposed to be there at eight o'clock. And we were just giggling and everything. And we just kind of stood there. Okay, well, what do we do now? And that's when we heard a a brief, loud shouting from the right. If it were a clock, I'd say, you know, one or two o'clock one o'clock from where we were standing. And that's when we went home. So come to find out, you know, I didn't find out until probably 10 years ago that Sister Kathy was actually taken From her apartment because the news story said she disappeared on a shopping trip to Edmondson Village. And that's all I read. And that's all I assumed that somehow her car was found down by Edmondson Village somewhere. When I found out, oh, it was up there on North Bend Road. Huh. I know where I was that night and I know what I heard that night. So I'll just throw it out there that maybe, you know, could have been related. Could have been not. Could it have been someone yelling in an argument? Yes. Could it have been someone shouting to a friend? Yes. You know, could it have been anger? Yes. Could it have been just, you know, somebody calling out, don't forget to bring home the milk, honey, you know, whatever. Or the beer, I guess. That's why I threw it out there.
0: Mary, the voice you heard, did it sound like a man's voice?
2: Yes. You know, a male voice. And when I say booming, to me, that doesn't mean deep necessarily, loud, like projecting loud.
1: And actually, Mary, I'm going to remind, well, I'll remind you, but you came, you were so um, adamant about letting somebody know this information that you came to a meeting at my home, the first one we had. Right. And some of the survivors came and talked about what happened to them and you told me on the way out. Um, about Teresa correct, I thought it was very important what you had to share, and you didn't tell us all the information you've shared just now, but it was because out of the goodness of your heart and because you wanted to know the truth that you came forward to me but i um my question is, you said you and your friend looked at your watches, and it was you said it was shortly after eight when Mr. Noon left the, left his house? Correct. Now, do you think it's possible that the shouting was him? Mr. Noon? What if he was going over to the... Oh, 19th?
2: no. He was in his car. He mm-hmm. went down the street to Rockland Road, right. made a left turn. Mm-hmm. This happened Okay. between that. And mm-hmm. it was like he had barely turned the corner and we stood up and went, ah! can you believe it and then we heard
1: it the other thing i wanted to mention to you mary before i forget is that that page that you were talking about still does exist and for anybody who is an alumni of archbishop keogh it is akhs survivors and it's okay it's not just for survivors it's for anybody who's an alumni of Archbishop Keough, So you will be, anybody who's listening who fits that category, please request membership. But Abby and the moderators will ask the two other people to vouch for you that you went to Keogh.
2: You know, I kind of, I kind of remember that now. Right. That they grandfathered some of us over under a new name. The other
1: thing I want to say to the listeners is that I'm going to make a confession because I want to support what Mary's saying. Uh, when I was a senior, my friends and I, and my mother's in heaven, so but she already knows this. We would go to a liquor store. It would be like five of us, and whoever looked the oldest would go in. I don't think I was ever brave enough to with fake cards. We'd get a six pack and split it between five of us. Okay, and then we would go over. To Kingston Road where the male teachers lived. I guess we thought we were something else and we would do donuts in the street in front of their house, the <laughs> house that's in the keepers. And it was kind of on a bend. So doing donuts there was not very easy. So whoever was, was nervy enough to not like hit a car with their parents whatever car they were being allowed to drive was the one that would be doing... The- Buick LeSabre or
2: something, oh, probably.
1: we would all be yelling, Mr. So-and-so, Mr. So... <laughs> and so mister and we would call them by their first names, and as soon as, like, somebody the light would go on, we'd bolt from there, but, you know, this is not, like, stalking. This is, like, acting like teenagers who um, maybe had a half a beer and are driving <laughs> mom or dad's car. So... There you go, Mary. I know you weren't doing that, but I was.
2: Close. <laughs> we used to go to St. Lawrence because we found out Mrs. Beginski went to 10 o'clock mass there. We wanted to see what she wore outside of school. You know, it, <laughs> and I'm sure you probably knew where Mrs. Garson lived from St. William's. And well, yeah, I knew I'm where so. Mrs. Cussin lived because she was yeah. on our side of the highway.
1: And they, they were all like... uh lay teachers at St. Williams, but they were also like friends of my parents, and we all belonged to the same pool and the same, you know, right. whatever, swim club, and so it was just like. My
2: you know, mother used yeah. to go to ball games with Mrs. Cusson, to Oriole oh. games, and also I've heard from people who have been very supportive that have said, no, I don't think you're a stalker. One girl said, let me tell you what my, I used to do. We used to get dressed up in our Halloween costumes and make my mother drive us all over the city so we could go see different teachers on Halloween. So it I guess you either do it or you don't. And if you don't, you don't understand it. But
0: (laughs) Mary, you mentioned this already, but I wanted to bring a little bit more attention to it. We've spoken to a lot of people who have been in the keepers and it seems like a common theme that some of them have is that some received Hurtful comments after the document, the documentary was released. When we spoke to Sharon Smith, she mentioned that her and her mom were criticized for speaking out about wrongdoing that they felt that their relative had done, which of course was Billy and her dad. Right. Uh, and Gemma has mentioned before that she was also criticized, and and there were hurtful comments there for for her bringing attention to the case within the Keepers. Did you suffer from hurtful comments that were made through social media? And if so, what kind of comments did you receive?
2: Well, I think part of the problem is because people do not interact face to face. They interact with a screen and word. They don't realize that there's a person on the other side that is going to read those words. Also, people nowadays do not know how to have a discourse of I think this, and here's why. The discourse becomes, you're wrong. And that's what I found. People were saying, as if I were lying, that I hadn't really heard what I heard. You know, she couldn't have. She was too far away. She couldn't have because because there were probably kids at the school playing basketball, and they were shouting, and that's all she heard. You know, that kind of thing. Don't tell me what I think I heard. I'm not it's not gonna help change the situation. I'm pretty sure I know what I heard. And if you disagree that maybe it wasn't possible to hear anything from, you know, a distance or whatever, disagree. But you don't have to put your disagreement out in public. And the other thing is I never once said I heard Father Maskell yelling at Sister Kathy. And that's uh, read carefully, listen carefully. That's not what I said. I heard a thing which may or may not have been connected. What I wanted to say was in your situation, if you hear something, if you see something, if you come forward and let the authorities decide if it fits the overall picture. And they can reject it or not, but you'll feel better about yourself. Having gotten that off your conscience and you don't have to wonder about it
0: anymore. Mary, I think you're exactly right. Something that I've mentioned many times before is that if you know something, even if you think that it's silly, if it may sound stupid or it's just so little, like that could be a major part to the larger puzzle. So I wanted to thank you for coming forward with that story. And I hope that that will instill some. Some some hope within other people and some uh, strength to also come forward because ultimately when we have each of those small little puzzles puzzle pieces fit together that can give us something big and something huge and we've had that before where where someone has come forward with something so small that they didn't think it was important so so thank you for for doing that I wanted to also lead into something that you mentioned slightly in an email to Gemma and I. About how your father met school. Can you tell? Oh me?
2: yes, my father was a physician, a surgeon, and he had been in World War II. And after World War II, he continued in the Army Reserve. And they would have these once a month, you know, these drills where he would go. And once a year, they would have these huge, um, I don't know, military Maryland thing to prepare for a disaster. And the National Guard would come, and the hundred station hospital unit would be there and other things were around the state to deal with a disaster. So, lo and behold, I believe it was probably a Sunday because this would have happened over a weekend on a Saturday or Sunday. And I came in the front door. My father was in the dining room standing and um, putting, you know, I don't know, his wallet and stuff away where he kept it in there. And I heard him say to my mother, She's home. And I thought, oh, dear, what have I done now? You know, they're going to yell at me. So my mother comes out of the kitchen, wiping her hands on a, you know, dish towel. And my father says, um, I met a friend of yours today. And I said, a friend of mine, too. And he said, Father Maskell. And I said, well, he's no friend of mine. He's the priest at our school, but I don't have anything to do with him. And this look of relief came over both their faces. Phew. And my father said, Good, because I met him this weekend. He thinks he's your friend. And he was, he's a weirdo. Stay away from him. And I wish, you know, if my father were alive today, I'd say, What gave you the idea he was a weirdo? Well, I know, kind of having been a nurse for 30 plus years, you can pick up weirdo up like that so it could have just been simply that or i was wondering did he try to convince my father that i had psychological problems and i should let you know he should let his daughter come for counseling and my father probably disagreed with him and so he was glad that i hadn't already been going to counsel.
0: i'm glad that your parents felt that way because it seems like he was able to trick a lot of parents
2: Right. And well, my father probably wasn't the most Catholic of all Catholics, so I doubt he subscribed to the, um, you know, <laughs> priests or God belief. Right.
0: I'm
2: also thinking Lil, I think it was Lil Hughes. And by the way, Lil Hughes wouldn't, again, probably know me from Adam, but I I just loved her. She sat, I went on her bus to go home sometimes. She was the nicest, most vivacious funny. I loved her laugh. I'm glad she can still have it after everything that happened to her. But anyway, she said her mother said she didn't trust Maskell either. There was something creepy about him.
1: And Mary, what you're also, your story is also pointing out is that Maskell was part of that exercise because of his <coughs> involvement with the, um, what did you say, with the National so he Guard? He was in the
2: National Guard, I believe. Right, and, you know, this Army. was a joint exercise. Oh, and I think another thing my father may have, again, I'm just guessing and speculating as we do about everything, but um, it could also have been like Maskell's fascination with, you know, the military and all that kind of stuff. My father was like not really into the like shooting of guns and blowing people up aspect of it. You know, he was, his unit was sort of like MASH where people got injured and you sewed them back together. And Mm -hmm. he probably didn't have that much respect for somebody who was gung-ho, go out there and blow up the commies kind
1: of attitude. Yeah, we understand that Maskell, when he was at the pastor at Our Lady of Victory, the rectory was across the street from the church. And in the front room, he had his military uniforms and his Uh clothes on display, like it was a museum.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Well, I know someone at KEO who let her come forward if she wants, used to say to me, "I, you ought to come talk with Maskell and me. He is really a cool guy. He lets you sit on his lap and wear his military helmet. She seemed to like that and enjoy that. So
1: not for me. Okay. <laughs> hey, so Mary, you've just shared something that nobody else shared with us, so. You may not have thought that, you, you know, that it was a little piece, but it's, again, a very um, bizarre way for any adult to act with us. A- exactly. A exactly.
0: Mary, you mentioned to us before about odd behavior that Maskell had while you were at the school. Can you tell us about when he was referencing the book The Godfather?
2: Well, The Godfather came out. I looked it up. I think towards the end of, or early, 1969. So this would have been the end of my freshman year. Sister Kathy was still there my freshman year, but this had nothing to do with her. He used to, you know, Gemma, you'll relate to this. You know how maybe if you saw Father Albert walking around St. Williams, he would be carrying his Bible in his arm or some kind of holy book. Maskell would stand out in the hall outside of the chapel at change of class, holding that same way, like up against his heart, The Godfather. And a friend of mine was walking by, and she had her copy of The Godfather. And she said, oh, I'm reading it too. And he said, well, have you read page, and I don't know what the page number was, I'll make one up, 250 yet? And she said, no. And he said, read that. So, of course, we ran right down to study hall and opened it up, and it was the scene where Sonny was, for lack of a better word, winking one of the bridesmaids up against the wall upstairs at the family home during his sister's wedding. And we just thought, oh, Maskell is a dirty old man. <gasps> oh, look, and he enjoys reading that. But again, Did it occur to us that he was anything other than, you know, priests are asexual? He did this as a, you know, release because he can't have normal sex relations. He has to read about it in a book. Dirty old man. But it never occurred to us that he was actually acting on some of this stuff for real. And then again, I thought his office kind of looked like the Godfather with the dark, um, and the you know, the lamp on the desk and all that.
1: What took you into his office? Because I know No,
2: just walking by if the door was oh. open. Yeah. I was afraid of too afraid to have anything to do with priests.
1: The viewing audience may not be aware that the chap the uh his office and the school shot were not the actual interior of Archbishop Teo. Right. Women who have talked about what happened to them there or that went there gave really good descriptions to our filmmakers about the kinds of chairs and tables we had, where the desks were, where everything was in his office so that they were able to actually recreate Hollywood style or in Hollywood or their soundstage, a replica of his office that's actually very accurate. That's not truly the inside of Keo because they were not permitted to from inside the building.
2: You know, when I first saw the documentary, I thought, how'd they ever get in there? And then I realized, oh, they probably didn't. The archdiocese would be foolish to let them. Right. But and, you know, even if they had, I was like, man, if they did get in there, those aren't the kind of lockers we had. Our lockers no, were from floor to ceiling, you know. Yeah. And,
1: and our <laughs> lockers stuck out. You remember, yeah. they stuck out from the wall. The other thing is that the young woman that plays Jean um, in those episodes with the long hair was actually an actress in her 30s. That right. Very young from the back. So, um, yeah.
2: People don't nice. think to ask, wait a minute, how could they have gotten these old shots of Jean? You know, they just, right. you're just tricked in a way. That's Hollywood for you. You know, good job for them, though.
1: Yeah, they had. The so, yeah.
2: one thing that I thought was a Big continuity problem, and I'm shocked they didn't catch. Was when the girl at Western went to talk to Sister Kathy, and she was wearing a Catholic school uniform. That's not what you wore in public school.
1: Wait a minute. In the keepers, she's wearing a. I'm pretty sure that um, I'm pretty sure sh- or saddle shoes. I'll ask. A- it's Juliana. And I will ask her, because they may have had uniforms at Western. It was an all Oh, I don't
2: think so. I
1: Maybe, but... Yeah, I'll ask her. I think some people don't understand that 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 was not Keo, that she was teaching at a public school in the city. That was not Keo when Juliana spoke to her. So I'll check with her. I'll take a look at it again. And
2: that was... You know, the inside was probably Hollywood High, you know, for all um, I know.
1: Did, well, they did use schools that were in Los Angeles, I believe, that were not in session and were willing to, you know, permit them to do filming inside the schools, but they did use... Which the they're probably schools.
2: used to out there, you know?
1: Yep.
0: Mary, we know that Maskell had a lot of weird habits and weird things that he liked to bring up. You mentioned about the cemetery oh. napkin. Oh, oh. yes.
2: Several people have that I've talked to will remember this. Across from Maskell's office was a girl's room, and there was a sanitary machine, sanitary napkin machine on the wall. And I don't know whether it was really always broken or that was Maskell's thing that he told the cleaning lady, but supposedly he told the cleaning lady that since it was always broken, Just give him some sanitary napkins, and he'll keep them in his office. And their sign was put up that said, if you need one, go see Father Maskell. So someone I know did. And don't ask me who. I just remember having a conversation with someone. I'll never do that again. He started asking me, you know, well, how frequent are my periods? How many days do they last? Are they heavy or light? And um, do you ever worry that you might be pregnant? And she thought, uh uh-oh, I'm going to say no, because if I say yes, he's going to think I'm sexually active and make me come and talk to him. So she picked the right answer and said, no, why would I? And um, she got off. (laughs) Oh, I've heard different people when they describe their, you know, on your podcast that he was heavily into asking questions about menstruation
0: yeah, he had a a weird fascination with that bowel movements as well. Right, right, a bunch yeah. of weird stuff.
1: But you know i I think we can all probably we're all probably thinking right now, why would you want to know about when your period is, right? because i it's my understanding that he met every week with the nurse. right uh, the um dean and the guidance counselor, who was I don't know if it was a nun or a lay teacher. Um, and they went over the the names of girls who were either having issues, health issues, academic issues, issues at home. And I'm sure he knew the time of everybody's period right. in the building because, well, think about it. Why would he want to know that?
2: I used to carry my own with me just so I didn't, I was so, would have been mortified to even ask the nurse for a sanitary
1: bed. Mm-hmm.
2: Maybe that saved me. But um, it gave him an in to stay, you know, like I said. Oh, well, um, is it ever late? And if it is, are you worried that you're pregnant? Well, yes, I was. And I wasn't even sexually active. But I thought if I went swimming at the pool at St. Joe, a sperm might get up there, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Which I did one time. We had some kind of pool party over at St. Joe one summer. St. Joe was the boys' pool, by the way.
0: I also wanted to bring up something that you also mentioned in the email, and you're you're welcome to say whatever you like about this, but about a vague memory that you have.
2: This is what I wanted to ask you. Do you all um, talk to people who say, I remember this, but I'm not really sure it happened to me? Because that's the way I feel. It was so it's vivid in a way, but... Could it be that I just have empathy with someone else because it would have been such an embarrassing thing to have happened? I don't know. But I can remember, I'll say it was me. Like I said, I only went by Maskell's end of the hole one time, you know, but I, here I was going by on my rounds to go around everywhere else three times. And my shirt tail was out. And Father Maskell said, Come over here. Your shirt tail's out. Turn around. And he stood up behind me. And really hard, pressed his hand down inside my skirt, really slowly tucked my shirt tail in all the way around Mm -hmm. while he's rubbing, grinding up against me in the back. And again, I thought, oh, it couldn't be anything sexual. He's a priest, you know. Mm -hmm. Little did I know. And again, it was more embarrassment for me that I was being reprimanded in public that way, you know. I would have rather he said, go tuck it in
0: in the restroom. (laughs) I think it's important to know that many of the survivors talk about their own repressed memory. And it seems like there's an event or something that happens where they'll receive a little bit of it, but then over time they'll receive more and more. So you asked us if we had had heard anyone say things like that where they start to remember something. And it's definitely a huge pattern Mm -hmm that we've that we've seen
2: good and maybe it was me you know yeah and I didn't just see it because I remember the feeling of it how would I remember that feeling if I just saw him pull some other girl over and tuck her shirt in unless he did it to everybody
0: right you mentioned before to us as well about you walking to hunting hills pool
2: Gemma you know where that
1: is oh we all walked I walked I don't know how far that was You lived a lot further away. West Hills, but we walked every single day, probably at least two miles. To
2: get to the so the way I used to, I lived on Chapel Gate Lane. Anyway, I would walk down my street, make a left turn on Woodside, walk along Woodside, and right where Woodside kind of turned into Nottingham was where Teresa Harris lived. And then you would go down a little dip A family we knew lived on the right, and then you would go around in a little corner and you'd be at the pool. So several times when I was on that Nottingham stretch between Woodside and the pool, Maskell would drive past, and we knew everybody's car. I have to tell you, I knew every car in that parking lot because I used to watch people come in in the morning and see what kind of car they drew, although he parked up the other end um, by his office, but I still knew his are. Sometimes he'd blow the horn, sometimes he'd wave. And the first time I was like, who was that? But then I was like, oh, it's masterful. An and I, you know, a couple of times I would say in the course of my years of going back and forth to the pool, I would see him drive past. It didn't occur to me, what's he doing over here? You know, oh, will priests go out on visits to see the stick or something? Um, or it's a good way to cut through to Frederick Road from Edmondson. Maybe he was up there for some reason. And I'm thinking, oh, now I'm like, oh, of course he wanted to drive by Teresa's house. Maybe he just dropped her off from one of his, you know, trips with her. Who knows?
1: But, and that would have been in the summer.
2: Yeah, that was in the summer. walking sure. to the, You know, somewhere after 69.
0: Mary, one of the last things that I had that I wanted to bring up to give some background to this, Recently, Gemma and I have been exploring a possible connection with Father Maskell in a CIA program called MKUltra.
2: Yes,
0: yes. So we know that we have several facts about the program, that points that maybe a portion of this program was being tested on unknowing individuals in Baltimore specifically around the same time period that the abuse was occurring uh, to many of our survivors. We've made several links between Maskell and MKUltra, and we're still exploring that, and we're hoping to share our findings and discoveries in a later episode. But there was a a little thing that you included that you had mentioned to us about a a very uh, weird interaction, we can say. Can you tell me about that, about your interaction at the grocery store?
2: Okay, well, I didn't even know what Wormwood is, was, or whatever. It's another Netflix documentary, and it was... Filmed having to do with a man who worked in this program that you described or a similar one that where they were testing LSD to control people and to understand how to manipulate people using LSD. And suddenly, the guy supposedly committed suicide by jumping out a window. And the family doesn't quite believe that. They believe that perhaps he was given LSD and manipulated into jumping out the window, or he was purposely killed because he was going to expose something about the program. Who knows? So the young man who was his son at the time and is now probably my age or about was named Eric Olson, and he was played himself in the documentary describing his family's efforts to understand what happened with his father. So I was in a grocery store down the street from me. I don't want to give them full um, free publicity. Anyway, I was standing there looking at some kind of fruit. And I heard this woman at the table say, weren't you in the Netflix documentary? And I was thinking, oh, here's somebody else who saw The Keepers. (laughs) Here comes a long conversation. So I looked up. And she wasn't looking at me. She was looking at the man next to me. And he kind of said, yes, I was. And she said, Wormwood, right? And he said, yes. And she said, oh, that's the only documentary I've ever watched on Netflix. And I said, oh, good, because I don't feel like having a long conversation right now. So um, because everybody likes to weigh in on their theories and everything. And, you know, I enjoy it, too. But I just don't like to take a lot of time something. So it turned out when I got home, I was like, what's Wormwood? So then I looked it up, and sure enough, the guy was Eric Olson. And they live in Frederick, so I guess it wouldn't be unexpected him for him to be down Ellicott City Way.
1: There are no coincidences. At first, people thought it sounded crazy, but only because it sounds very science fiction-like. But it was a CIA project. And right. It did involve Hopkins and it did involve Edgewood Arsenal. It also involved the doctor. Or Dietrich. Uh, sure. The doctor, Paul McHugh, who testified in the Doe Rowe case that there is no such thing as recovered memory syndrome, which now we know is not accurate. So we have lots of questions, and I think it's like something that needs to be explored. So if anybody's listening, that would like to talk to us about the MKUltra project, if you were involved in it, if you think you were a subject, please get in touch through Shane's podcast page because this is a real thing, and it's very similar to the techniques that Maskell used on his victims.
0: Many people call it a conspiracy theory, but I think that it's also important to realize that in the beginning and then you know in the 90s when jean was coming forward with the trial conspiracy theory is something that often is thrown out there and i think that, that that was probably being done back then you know how how could this happen that sounds like someone's just making this stuff up you know how could a priest be abusing all these people
2: right right but all yeah. of this stuff was unbelievable You know, some people took a lot of convincing to understand what was really going on. And some people took a lot of convincing to just accept the possibility that maybe it had something to do with Sister Kathy. Because everybody loves Sister Kathy. No one would hurt Sister Kathy. And I think that attitude in the beginning also thwarted a full investigation because the police were like, geez, we're stuck.